This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. The work of science can seem obscure, even opaque, to people outside it. Yet, the discoveries that scientists make have inherent interest and value for all of us. But we're not all trained in the vocabulary and protocols of specialized subfields of science, and so we all need help in understanding those studies. Today, we'll be talking with an amazing science writer and journalist who helps scientists share their discoveries with the public. Through his own understanding of science and storytelling, he's able to transform information from the primary literature to knowledge that is understood and enjoyed by people far outside these scientific fields. Our guest today, Paul Gabrielson, is a science writer and journalist who works in the Office for Marketing and Communication at the University of Utah. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Nalini. I'm happy to be here. Great. Thanks so much for your time. Paul, you know, I know that your work really focuses on the work of others, uh, of scientists, and, and we'll get to that in detail in a moment. But I'd like to focus on you for just a bit. I am so impressed with the breadth of your knowledge as you cover topics from astrophysics to zoology. But I understand that you got your undergraduate and your master's degrees in geology and then got a certificate in science communication, followed by a set of internships and writing positions at different science journals, like the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And I'm really interested in knowing how your own science background in one field, geology, prepares you for interpreting the very, very technical writing about a huge range of scientific fields that you cover. I mean, how do you manage this breadth of, ex of expertise um, as you encounter these different fields of science? Well, I think earth science is a very interdisciplinary field to start with. So uh, when we're talking about geology, if we're talking about, let's say, paleontology and dinosaurs and, and other ancient creatures, we're going to get into biology and anatomy. Or maybe if we're talking about mineralogy and the the way that atoms are arranged to create the minerals and rocks that we know, that's going to bring in a lot of chemistry. If we're talking about uh, the way that continents collide and rocks lift up to become mountains, then we're going to get into a lot of physics. So I think that my earth science background gave me a little bit of a broad range of fields and, and kind of the vocabulary of each of those fields. But I think part of it is just as, as I went through school, I tried to pick up what I could here and there uh, in graduate school. I, I got my master's degree in hydrology. I wanted to understand how uh, the microorganisms in groundwater interacted with, you know, the chemistry in groundwater. So I took a class on biology and I just kind of picked up what I could here and there to grab some of that vocabulary. Of course, most of what I know about particle physics comes from watching Star Trek as a kid. <laughs> That's great. Well, that's true. We all, I think, do pick up science from, from different places. And I see that, you know, earth sciences is sort of like a, an expandable Venn diagram in a way uh, that, that intersects with other fields of science. So I hadn't thought about that, but I think that makes total sense. I also have been thinking about that, you know, that most journalists, I imagine, work for news bureaus or for particular newspapers or magazines. And I think historically, journalists have really served as the movers and shakers uh, between science and society. But I also understand that the media is not always trusted by scientists because they often perceive that, you know, that media interpretation of their their work, their scientific work might become inaccurate or oversimplified or, or sensationalized or alarmist. And so I'm wondering how you have handled that sort of sense of potential suspicion or distrust between scientists and the media. 
I understand what you're saying, and and I haven't felt a lot of of a sense of distrust in the people that I've worked with. But I think that my role is really important in in trying to um, go between that because where I come in is I say, here I am. Uh, I work for the university. You know, you're going to get a chance to look at everything I write to make sure it's accurate. But I'm going to be kind of sitting in that role as a journalist. So I'm going to be asking you those kinds of questions that a journalist would. Uh, and I'm going to be helping kind of turn this study into a narrative uh, in the way that a journalist would, which is where I'm going to look for things that are relevant to a broad audience, but in in a way that the scientist at the university gets to have a lot of uh, feedback and, and, I guess, control over that message. So like we can go through that journalistic process, but come out at the end with something that, that the scientist is comfortable with. And I found that a lot of times the messages that we come up with in our university news releases are kind of the same themes and analogies and messages that journalists broadly use when they're talking about the study. Yeah, I know that you know that that role that you play as a journalist between and and sort of standing between the scientists and the public. I think that's an incredibly important role, especially when it comes to policymakers. I know very often our decision makers they want to know an answer: is it yes or is it no? You know, is it how many species will go extinct and how many won't? And very often scientists, because of the uncertainty that is inherent in the scientific process, feel very uncomfortable with that you know, with that uncertainty being being taken away from them. And I'm wondering how you deal with that. How do you still fold in the uncertainty that goes along with scientific research into statements that the public or a policymaker is hungry to hear? I think it's important to pay attention to the words that you use. Uh, sometimes uh, in, in writing about studies, I, I make sure that uh, in the language that I use that there's room for that uncertainty, right? So we can say the results suggest this answer or uh, the this may lead to this conclusion. I think that's super important. And I think sometimes I think the scientists are unaware of the importance of the choice of those particular kinds of words. I'd like to learn a bit more about your process. Um, how do you choose which articles you cover? Uh, do scientists come to you uh, do you cruise the news outlets? Do you hang out in the reading room of, of Marriott Library and just sort of thumb through journals? How is it that you identify these these particular articles that, that you choose to cover? Well, at this point, I've been at the University of Utah for six years. Uh, and I've worked with, I, I have kind of a set of departments that I cover. We call it my beat. That's a, a journalist term for kind of the subject matter that you specialize in. And so I've built up relationships with scientists over time. Uh, where and and with departments, uh, so that they kind of know what my role is and how I can help them. So a lot of my work these days is people coming to me. Uh, I see. Um, but so you don't have to go about knocking on doors or or or, uh, or or sort of sticking your heads in labs that people actually say, "Hey, Paul, I really need help with getting this this really cool article I just I just published." Well, at the beginning, it was like that. Um, it's it's kind of a scrounging process. Uh, I remember one when I was an intern at Stanford University in their news office, I did have to do some scrounging because, you know, just as an intern, all the other writers had their beats and, and uh, I had to kind of go find my own stories. I would start scrolling through websites, through lab sites, and I would look for recent publications and I'd look for anything that in the title sounded like something that could be interesting. And then I'd go write to the author and ask about that. 
And, and what do you find the attitude is about scientists whom you contact? Uh, do they love being part of a press, press release? Are they suspicious of it? Do they, do they know how to talk to you? What is what? How do they respond when you get in touch with them? Yeah, I've had a lot of good responses. Sometimes people will say, "Well, you know, this this isn't really ready for prime time yet," or, or maybe this this study that is is just kind of an incremental advance, which is fine. You know, I respect that uh, their assessment of how newsworthy something is. But a lot of people are excited because they want more people to understand what their work is and what the importance of it is. But maybe they don't know what the steps are to get it out to a broader audience beyond their own academic community. Right. I think that's the I think that's true in many cases and that's I think that's why science communicators and and journalists like you are so critical to uh, to basically the the health of the relationship between science and society. When I look at your press releases, I see that very often you tie the topic or the process of the scientific study to some known topic or activity and it seems like very often you do sort of you almost you almost tell a story, like a storytelling or a narrative or a Aesop's fable. Or Tell me about this technique of storytelling. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is always connect something that's known, something that's familiar, to something new. And it starts, it starts in the headline, right? And even from the headline, from the first words, I want to bring into the story something the reader is comfortable with and familiar with, and then kind of lead them into this new world with new vocabulary and, and uh, new knowledge uh, as the story goes through. And you're right, it is a narrative. We process things in, in a narrative story. And so you'll find in science journalism articles that they follow kind of a similar pattern, which is that we start Can with... Can you describe that? Yeah, yeah please we, describe that. We start with uh, the background, what came before, kind of setting the context for this new study. We talk about the results or the, the methods even. We talk about the methods, what the scientists did and what they found. And then we end with implications, what it means. And that's just that's a really common story structure, background, methods, results and implications. And so that's kind of the general framework. But, yeah, you're right. I, I know that readers are going to come into this story knowing probably nothing or maybe close to nothing about the topic that we're getting into. And I want to take them bit by bit, assemble the the words they need to know, the concepts they need to know. So by the end, they know what's happened and they know why it's important. And, you know, I really picked up on that particular pattern that you've just described, Paul, uh, when you showed me this these two companion stories. One was the scientific paper that was published recently in Nature Geoscience, uh, and then your press release. And when I was reading them side by side, I was just really amazed by how you were able to take this extremely technical and seemingly obscure topic about the internal structure of ultra-low velocity zones consistent with origin from basal magma ocean, uh, but you turned it into a story. And I, I'd like to read for our, our listeners how you started this out. You wrote, let's take a journey into the depths of the earth, down through the crust and mantle nearly to the core. We'll use seismic waves to show the way since they echo through the planet following an earthquake and reveal its internal structure like radar waves. So I thought that was so smart because suddenly the reader can just say, oh my gosh, I'm like Captain Nemo. You know, I'm going 20,000 leagues under the sea. I'm taking a journey to the depths of the earth. And then you gave us some vocabulary and then you proceeded to talk us through 
the importance of the study, the methods that were used, and then the results that it, that emerged. Can you describe that a little bit more? Sure. So I, I start with the manuscript. When someone reaches out to me and says, I have a, a study, my first thing that I want to do is I want to look at the paper. And that's how science is written up, is, is scientists write their own kind of structure and narrative of what they did and what it means. But as you said, often it is in the language of their field. It might not be immediately accessible to people who aren't familiar with that field and their tools and their vocabulary. As I start to read this paper, I'm looking for what I can use to connect a reader to the paper. What, is, what are going to be the interesting uh, bits that are going to make it feel familiar? You talked about that idea of a journey, right? And so I thought, okay, so what's the setting of this paper? We're talking about structures in the Earth's mantle down near the core, and that holds, you know, a sense of adventure to it and a sense of sense of wonder at this place that's on Earth but is very inaccessible and is very unfamiliar to, to what things are like up here. So then after that, I noticed that the, the, the question I always have to answer is, so what? Why does it matter what we've learned about these these regions near the core? And what I saw is that they kept saying that this, the, the structure of these regions, what we can tell about them from seismic waves is that they may be leftovers from the very earliest days of the planet when it was still just a magma ocean, which is another element of, right? It's just like the core. It's an element of adventure and something that we can picture that kind of gets us excited about what the study might be teaching us. But I think... You know, that, that idea of making a story is, is so compelling for people because we as humans sort of evolved with listening to stories in order to gain information. But when I sometimes when I speak with scientists, especially when, you know, sort of giving advice about public engagement and saying, oh, you should tell a story about your data, there's kind of a tension there because science is not story. Science is data. And a single story or an anecdote, although compelling, can also be misleading. And so I'm wondering about this tension between anecdote and storytelling or narrative of a single incident or element of that study versus saying, but these are what the data show us. And so how do you play with that as you try to convey the essence of a scientific study? Well, obviously, our readers aren't going to need to see the whole supplemental data set that's involved with uh, with scientific right. papers. Yes. Their colleagues, their scientific colleagues are going to want to see that because they're going to be interested in the methods used and, and the exact numbers that came out of it. But if I'm telling a story, it may be kind of an, uh, I wonder if sometimes it might be oversimplified, but the results section sometimes is kind of short because I've done a lot of setup to say this is what they were looking for and I do a lot with implications to say what this means but sometimes results is kind of short that the authors found that this measure was more under this condition than under this condition got it got it that's so interesting i think that you know as lay people we think oh well the results are the most important you know what were the data behind it but actually it sounds like from what you just said that the results can be quite succinct quite concise and what you need to do is elaborate on the story around it and also the implications of it, why it is that we should care about it. Right. It's it's one, it's one. part of it to know what happened, but it's also a significant part to know what it means. In your opinion, is social media, that is, you know, the use of Twitter to disseminate information about science, do you feel that that's a curse or a blessing for science writers and for scientists? 
Well, I think uh, I think it's a good thing. Um, my primary social media presence is on Twitter, and I find that that is a place where I find a lot of scientists talking to each other, uh, sharing news articles. I also find that that's a place where science outlets are trying to to share their work. So that's a conversation that I can be a part of uh, when I share. It, it it also the the brevity of it uh, of a tweet makes me think about a story in in kind of its most basic simplest forms. How can I capture someone's attention in just a few words? How can I do something that has uh, visual appeal, something that will encourage them to want to learn more and click on the link to get to that story? And that's that's tricky <laughs> to uh, to boil a story down to something that's so that's so succinct. I, I can just picture you kind of like chipping away at the extra words until you get it down to that 140 characters or whatever to tweet it out. Yep. Yep. My first uh, drafts a... usually go pretty far into the red and I have to pare it down from there. <laughs> that's great. But when we think about social media and the brevity of the messages that need to go out to, to sort of fit the format of, of most social media, as you mentioned, they're very short, you know, they're very succinct, they're very concise. And yet there are many pieces of scientific research that are complex, that really require the scientists to take into account a lot of different factors, a lot of, uh, well, just complexity. And I'm thinking about a press release that you wrote about vultures and vulture population dynamics in Ethiopia, uh, the decline of vultures and the implications for the Ethiopian public. And I wonder if you could describe that paper and then maybe we can talk about the complexity of that and how you were able to transmit the complexity while still keeping those rules of, of succinctness and conciseness. Can you kind of describe that study? Sure. So the study is uh, a multi-year study of scavengers, particularly vultures, at they're, they're called abattoirs uh, or slaughterhouses. Um, you, they're, they're slaughterhouses, slaughter an animal under clean conditions, but then, of course, they have you know the, the bones and hooves and the waste products that you can't really sell as meat. Uh, and in Ethiopia, those waste products are taken to another facility and just kind of thrown on a pile. Well, the vultures in the area are very efficient, sanitary, carrion eating machines. They're this great cleanup crew that comes and <laughs> and takes care of all of these wastes. What an image! And well, and and the the uh, managers of these abattoirs kind of jokingly, half jokingly call the vultures employees of the slaughterhouse, right? Because <laughs> they fulfill that role. Got it. Got it. Of course. Uh, and, and this study was conducted in Ethiopia in, a, in an area uh, and with, you know, a, a, a group of scavenger, you know, the scavenger birds that hadn't been very well studied. And so they just wanted to learn more about the dynamics of uh, the population dynamics of these birds, what role they played in these urban environments. But what they found is that over the five years of the study that the vulture population kind of crashed. And that's because vultures face a lot of threats from a lot of uh, different sides, from poisoning, uh, mostly from poisoning, but um, poisoning can come through uh, drugs that are used in livestock animals or from lead in, uh, in ammunition. You know, there's, there's a lot of threats and vultures aren't exactly aren't animals that reproduce very quickly or mature very quickly. So these threats can really affect their populations. But when the vultures decline, someone else is going to come in to fill the gap. 
And in this case, they were seeing a rise in uh, dogs that were coming to, to start and eat some of this carrion, which is a problem because we, dogs are vectors for diseases like rabies. So if you lose the vultures and increase the dogs, you may have some spillover of rabies into the human population. So suddenly, uh, a story about the decline of vultures has some pretty direct impacts on human societies. Got it. So this really seems to be a case where what, what started out as a basic research question, what is the population dynamics of this, you know, of one scavenging bird, uh, really led to an under, a deeper understanding of the implications of that with respect to human populations. And that makes me think also about you know, when, when people today read news, read their papers, read their magazines, uh, look at their, their Twitter feeds, very often I think they're struck by, you know, how much despair there is in the world or how much there is to be to feel despair about. And very often hope can seem very far away. And I'm wondering, you know, when you write an article about or a press release about a study like this, about the study in Ethiopia by uh, Evan Bukley at the University of Utah, how do you avoid the sort of negativism that, that somebody might feel as they read this sort of scary story about the decline of vultures and the increase of rabies in human populations? You know, very often, I think there's a propensity for people to just put that study away or you know, move to the next page of the newspaper. So how do you find this balance between despair and hope or writings about despair and writings about hope where you need to convey the negative aspects and yet you don't want to lose your readers uh, uh, to this sense of despair? Well, I often ask uh, the people I interview, I say, what is the takeaway or what is the feeling that you want readers to have uh, after they read this? What's kind of the message that you want ringing in their ears? Or I, I guess they're not hearing it, but, but what's the message that you want to stay with them uh, after they're done reading this article? So sometimes in this in this particular case, it is, you know, you can read it as kind of a dire story, but there also is a little bit of hope in that they offer uh, a solution. If fencing around these compounds is reinforced and keeps the dogs out, then the vultures could come back. We haven't tried this experimentally to know that that for sure would work, but when presenting a problem and kind of explaining the importance of the problem, we can say, well, there are some things we can do, or maybe there are some more things that we could know that would help us uh, know what to do to fix it. Or, or to try to try to mitigate it some. And if nothing else, if by reading this, if someone can become aware of something that they weren't before, maybe they start caring about vultures in Ethiopia, then that to me is a sense of hope. As the world is more interconnected, we can show somebody how something that's happening on a completely different continent can affect people. And so if more people care about that, if more people understand the importance of vultures, that could have positive effects wherever they are uh, by them becoming interested in vulture conservation and active in advocating for vultures and other scavengers uh, that really do play a positive role in their ecosystems. So that awareness, that sense of, of exchange of knowledge is, is, is hopeful in and of itself, I think. And I think that's why science journalism and, and, and media communication of science is so incredibly important in terms of connecting science and society and advancing society's goals. Well, I could talk to you for a long, long time, Paul, but I just have one time for one more question. And that is, um, 
in our world where, you know, journalism in some ways has been turned on its head because of the internet and social media, uh, because people are finding out information in, in many different ways. I'm wondering if you have any advice for people who might be listening who would like to do what you do. What advice would you give a future science writer, a future journalist? The advice I would give is to start paying attention to what people pay attention to. Pay attention to when someone tells you a story, what hooked them on that story? What's the, the nugget in it? It doesn't have to be a science story, but when someone sits down to tell you a story, what is it about that that connected with them so that they want to share it? Or maybe as you watch how news information flows out, pay attention to where your neighbor gets their news from, where your nieces and nephews get their news from, where your grandparents get their news from. Because some one thing that we've run into at the University of Utah is, you know, we can send out emails all day long, but if our students aren't reading emails, aren't checking their emails, then we're not reaching them. So we have to be speaking in a medium that people are ready to hear. Yes. And in a venue where, where they'll encounter it. Right. So pay attention to how people get their information and what catches their interest. And then you'll be better positioned to deliver a message to them where they're already looking for information in a way that can connect with them. Well, I don't think anyone could say that better. That is fantastic. Paul Gabrielson, thank you so much for your, for your visit to us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on here. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks so much for listening. Now go have big ideas.